Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today we have the uh, extreme privilege of having our very own, meaning our Southeastern University's very own Dr. Waddell. Dr. Waddell was a pretty big fundamental person to my life and my education, and, and I, I'd probably say that for um, Ben as well in his education process. It's like kind of like the definitely, godfather definitely. to us. Yeah. Fundamental, instrumental, because he's not a fundamentalist, So, oh, right. but instrumental. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Waddell, if you can kind of give us uh, just some ideas about who you are and then what we're going to be talking about today. Well, it's a delight for me to be uh, with Aaron and Ben today. Letters of Christ written on my heart, not in tablets of stone or in pen and ink, but on my fleshly heart written by Christ. So um, I am a professor of New Testament, so that's my main, my main job. I also pastor a local church. And my wife and I, who have been married 29 years, have six daughters. And uh, a year ago, we had four daughters, and we adopted two more. So they've actually lived with us for three years, and they've been legally uh, ours for a year. And that has really changed the way in which I understand various uh, key parts of the New Testament and of the Christian gospel. And so both as a minister and as a scholar— I have been affected by Cecily and Carly kind of coming into my family and coming into my home, our home now. And so I'd like to talk some about that. Yeah. I have to say for me, I can't imagine, I feel like we're just going to have like a great time of encouraging each other right here in this moment. But I feel like for me, having the example um, of you, Dr. Waddell, kind of showing this kind of reality, you and Angela both, um, of not just wanting to think about the kingdom of God and what that actually looks like, but how that actually is put into practice in some of the most tangible ways, such as taking care of uh, the parentless, has been such an example because I think for me, there's this times where I kind of recognize people who do adoption and sometimes I go, well, you adopted this kind of perfect baby and this child and this is wonderful. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way and it's hard and messy. And I think having your story kind of shown to me such, so such beauty in what that is. So if you can explain a little bit about that process, I think it would be great. Certainly. I mean, Cecily and Carly came out of the foster care system. They were in the system when they came to live with us. And um, they were, had been sheltered for three years, which was the majority of their life. They came to us as five and six. They'd been sheltered since they were two and three the younger one, uh, Carly, had been in 11 different homes before she came to us, and the older one had been in 16 different homes. And so 
in addition to the abuse that they experienced that had them originally sheltered and protected, they then got kind of broken over and over. And so we know scriptures like in the book of James, true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And we see passages in Acts where they're talking about the widows or in uh, the Gospels where Jesus takes a child and says, such is the kingdom and says, unless you enter the child, enter the kingdom as a child. So for us, that's often very, I think, um, filled with uh, love and condolence and sympathy. But the child in the ancient world was just powerless. Yeah. In Aramaic... The word for child and the word for slave is one and the same. And so the children weren't necessarily the prized possessions. They were the ones who were the most vulnerable, the, the most powerless. And, and, and that's how he then describes the kingdom. And so part of what I'd like to talk about with, with you all is a little bit about just the economics of the kingdom, like how that works, and then what I think that should be looking like in a contemporary church setting. So good. So good. Yeah, I mean, what you just shared, uh, and again, I know the whole adoption um, process was burdensome on your daughters, on Cecily and Carly, Uh, but it is a clear picture of, right, us being adopted and grafted into the body of Christ, right, into the kingdom of heaven, that we are lovable, that there is value and worth. And I think that for me, I know Aaron just said that for me, um, the picture that I see every time I see them, I mean, they were with you on Tuesday, right? Um, or Monday when you were doing the seminar, they were in the front row cheering you on and sharing. And they've been in your family for the last four years, but it's almost as if they've been there forever. Like if they were, you know, actually yours um, from birth. Um, and so I think that's the beauty that I'm sure that if you ask them like, hey, who are your parents? Well, my, that's my dad right there. And that's my mom. Um, and the past really doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, they do, they do talk about those things uh, in similar ways. So Cecily, the older one, will say, well, my forever family. And she's talking about us, her family. And what she'll say is things that happened earlier in life this or that or the other, she would say, well, I didn't know who my forever family was. And so um, I, I didn't know that my family. So for example, her, uh, one of her biological grandmothers had asked her to refer to her as Nana. And she refused because our family has a Nana. We use the name for Angela's mom. Uh, we use that title, Nana. Now, Nana has passed away some 13 years ago. So long before Cecily was ever even born. But when, when her paternal uh, grandmother, biological grandmother, uh, said, well, maybe you can call me, you know, Nana Jane. She thought for a second and said, no. And then she said this. She said, when I called you Nana when I was younger, I didn't know who my forever family would be. But now that I know, we already have a Nana. And so, I mean, in Romans 8, Paul will talk about us being adopted like it's happened, but then he'll also talk about it in the future when we receive the spirit of adoption, like it will Mm. happen. And so one of the ways in which I've been understanding the church of late is that the church of God is God's foster care system. Like we will one day stand before the judge and we'll be declared justified and we will legally and forever 
Be part of the family. Yeah. The forever family. The forever family. Yes. But we're, we're bringing people into the church and we're caring for them and we're becoming their mothers and fathers, their sisters and brothers. And we are taking them in and protecting them, caring for them, providing for them, teaching them, training them as a family. But it is kind of as a foster family uh, does. Well, what I love about this is it really flips that kind of idea of the economics of the kingdom on its head, right? Just like you were saying earlier, this kind of reality that in, in Aramaic, slave and child are the same word. And this is the the word that, that Christ quite literally uses to actually talking about and talking about like who is welcome into the kingdom. Oftentimes, I feel like, especially for us in the church, or even us as individuals, we we always look towards power and money as the example of here's what a true kingdom looks like. And yet this economy of the of the kingdom seems to always kind of go, no, no, actually, that's the exact opposite. Yes, exactly. So our friend, Chris Green, who's also on faculty with us here at the School of Divinity, We'll talk about how when we when we speak of Jesus, if we say Lord or Master, we have to be careful because when we call Jesus Lord, he's not like any other Lord that we know because Jesus didn't come as a master in order to abol- abolish slavery. Jesus came as a slave to abolish yeah. slavery because by abolishing slavery as a slave, none of us can be a master then because who of us can be above Jesus? But had Jesus come of the master and abolished slavery, then we too could come along and be masters. And then as masters, we could enslave again. So it was as coming as the powerless that he dismantles all of our power structures. So just real quickly, there's a passage in Mark's gospel that talks about a widow giving two coins into the temple treasury. Now, typically, I think we read this passage and we, we talk of her as though she's this grand example of someone who gave all. So it says that rich people gave a lot. She gave all she had. And Jesus said to his disciples, come, look, look at this. Now, what it doesn't say is that look at this and this is a good thing. Yeah. It just says, yeah. look at this, because the passage just before that talks about scribes and how they like to be first and how they like to be spoken well of and how they devour widows. And then the passage just after that talks about the, mag- the magnificence of the temple, a temple that was built at least partially on the back of this widow. And Jesus says at the temple, I'm tearing this place down. Mm. And so I see yeah. her, it's not that she's done something wrong. It's that the system that Jesus was in was, as opposed to caring for widows, was just using them up, devouring them. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Like we are supposed to care for the least, care for the children, care for the widows, care for the strangers. And that's that's not typically how that text is read, but uh, I think it's how we should be reading it. Yeah. So... Let me ask this. We have um, roughly, possibly over 200 churches in the greater Lakeland area. Highland City is probably one of the most malnourished, impoverished, you know, sectors in Polk County. Uh, As I hear this, right, and we we talk about taking care of the widows, the orphans, um, the fatherless, the motherless, um, as a local pastor— 
um, who has a food pantry and does help out, um, what would you say to, uh, what's the balance, right, between, you know, doing something for everyone and then doing something for the least of these? Is there a difference? How can we? I mean, some would say we can't do all things, but we can do something. And so as a local pastor, you know, how do you interpret now the scripture, even though as a scholar you just did? Yeah, so I think the fact that there are folks in our communities that are suffering from food insecurity and what we are or aren't doing is a real indictment. So there's a variety of ways we can look at these things. So I was preaching recently on the Sabbath and how Jesus celebrates the Sabbath and how he says it's for people that we aren't for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is for people. And so being with people and being refreshed and being with God, not using any you know thing as a utility, is how you faithfully celebrate Sabbath. So I made this comment because I used to wait on tables when I was in seminary, and I know that still to this day, the worst shift of the week is Sunday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And it's because people are coming from church, and they're typically impatient. They're not especially uh, gracious or generous. They're leaving... Sometimes still to this day, which blows my mind, tracks instead of tips. Oh, gosh. And so I said to my congregation, I said, if the day were to ever come where the Sunday afternoon shift at restaurants was the most coveted shift of the week, then we would know that Christians were celebrating Sabbath the way Jesus wants us to celebrate. So our church actually doesn't have a food bank itself. There's, there is a food bank that's owned and operated by some of our parishioners, And so what we try to do is not to kind of recreate the wheel, but try to partner with other folks that are that are doing it. And so I'd say much the same way that the extent to which uh, there is food insecurity in our neighborhoods is an indictment on our churches. So the care for the powerless is at the very heart of the gospel. So we're all familiar with this idea that the disciples, the twelve would often get things wrong in the Gospels. They're kind of constantly being corrected by Jesus. You know, they, they want to marginalize the woman. He's like, no, bring her here. They're going to marginalize the children. He's like, no, bring her here. They're going to stop somebody else from casting out a demon because it says that they aren't following us. It didn't say they aren't following you, Jesus. It says mm. they aren't following us. And this is right on the heels of their inability to cast out a demon. I love that. I love in, in that failure. I love the one where you know Jesus looks at Peter and says, "On this rock, I'm going to build my church." And then a few verses later, he's like, "Get behind me, Satan!" Yes, and it's like this huge dichotomy I of like it. you can be at the top, but also now get behind me. You're you're acting as if Satan were in you. So we're not at all unfamiliar with the idea that the disciples weren't perfect in the Gospels. But then we get to the Book of Acts. And it's as though we treat them that they have somehow become infallible. Yeah. That everything they do becomes precedent for something we should do. But I don't know that that's the case. So in Acts, there seems to be this kind of racial profiling of widows because the Hebrew widows are well cared for, but the Greek widows aren't. And when it's, when the, it's get brought to the disciples' attention, they appoint others to do it. And they reserve for themselves study and prayer. So typically, that's held up as an example, that leaders in the church need to delegate. Mm-hmm. Now, that is true. Leaders in the church do need to delegate, and that churches uh, live or die on their volunteers. 
like being part of a church is organizing a lot of volunteers and being a good leader to church requires a lot of good delegation skills. However, what we choose to delegate, I think is quite important. And in that case, I think they chose the wrong thing. I think they could have formed some prayer teams. They could have formed some maybe Bible study teams, and they could have held at the central part of their activity, the central things that Jesus had said. Like his brother that says, true religion is carrying a widow of an orphans. Like Jesus, who says, such is the kingdom, it is this child. They could have said, oh no, we're going to make sure we get this done. And, and as support for that reading of that text, the, the book of Acts had been following, we could say, the apostles, or we could say it had been following the Spirit as the mm-hmm. Spirit moved through the apostles. Yeah. Because the next two main characters in the text are Stephen... And then <laughs> Philip, yeah, two of the folks who were then caring for the widows. Right. So they become the main characters. And it's Stephen's ministry, and it's Philip, the evangelist, who's carrying the first to actually carry the gospel outside of Jerusalem. The Spirit's moving through those who cared for the widows. Yeah. And I, th- I just think that this, is, this kind of comes back around to my understanding of the church as, as a foster care entity. Like, that's what yeah. we're to do, wow. is to care for people. Which, uh, not to bring up something that, you know, of course just happened in our church culture, but it did just happen. Uh, and I know a lot of people were posting about it and everything, but you have someone like, um, Benny Hinn, right. Who recently comes out and says this thing where he's like, and, and I might butcher a little bit exactly what he said, but he basically said, I used to think this way about prosperity gospel. And I've now seen the error of my ways. He even said, I know it's going to make some of my, my friends, my pastor friends upset with me that I'm saying this prosperity gospel thing, this give me a dollar and God's going to give you seven back, uh, is wrong. But my response wasn't quite so much. I was like, yeah, okay, good. Benny Hinn's, you know, standing up to say it's not a good theology. Great. I, I agree with him there. But now what's the response? Because we see these moments, I think, in the New Testament text, especially with Zacchaeus, right? When Jesus confronts Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus sees his wrong way of taking money from the poor, right? And, and kind of skimming off the taxes of the Roman tax system so that way he can prop himself up. And then he finally recognizes this is wrong. And Zacchaeus' first response is, I'm going to give it back and I'm going to give it back even more than I took. Mm. Because now I've recognized how I have taken from the poor and taken from the helpless, and I've got to give back and give back more because they're the ones who should have it to begin with, not me. And so I, this this economics of the kingdom, I think, is constantly asking us to be on our heads. Everything that we want is the probably the thing that we actually shouldn't be desiring. Well, I think I think yeah, I, I agree with you so much there, and. The, the challenge is sometimes I think people think that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace and the Old Testament is this high standard we couldn't do. So, you know, God had to send Jesus to save us from that high standard. But that's not at all the way Jesus seems to read mm-hmm. these texts. Yeah. Like each time Jesus seems to be quoting the Torah, he's quoting it as a, as a low standard, not a high one. You have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you not to hate. Yeah. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you not to lust. You've heard it said, um, love your neighbor. I'm telling you to love your enemy. So for following Jesus on this pattern, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, tithe, but I'm telling you, give, give all you all. can. Yeah. yeah. 
right? So his, his standard is, is not a tithe. His standard is sacrificial giving. And that's where a generous heart is then created. So the people that I know, you know, through the church world who are the most kind of generous givers love giving. Like they, they, they're following Paul. They're not doing it grudgingly. They're doing it joyfully. And I think that kind of giving and that kind of serving is very fulfilling. And there is, we mean, we don't do it for the result. And I think that's the challenge that the kingdom doesn't operate on the same um, ROI, return on investment that our typical economics do, because our typical economics has more to do with the self than with the group. Yeah. And to use just a little bit of, of the Greek of these words. So autonomy the self is, is from autos and namas, self and law or rule. So autonomy is the rule of the self. Economy is from oikos and namas. It's the rule of the law for the house. It's for the common good mm, yeah. for all of us together. Yeah. And too often our economies aren't for the oikos. They're for the autos. They're not for the house. They're for the self. Yeah. And it's only as it operates for the house that it's a kingdom way of being. And sometimes we get that kind of, we re-flip it up. Like you had said earlier, Aaron, that Aaron, that uh, Jesus comes and he's kind of flipping things on its head. And we're like, oh no, wait a minute. Yeah. Let's, let's flip that back over. Yeah. But we don't need to flip it back over. It's flipped upside down for a reason because that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So um, for our listeners who are out there, right? And maybe even... Some pastors that would say, okay, Dr. Waddell, Pastor Waddell, I hear that. So what are some practical things that I can do then to make sure that we are caring about the economy of others and not self? Like, how do we position our church? What should we do as a church in our communities? Um, Who should we be partnering with? How do we do it that we're not inward focused, but outward focused, knowing that we can't do it all? So what are some practical things as a pastor that you would tell listeners or even somebody that's a, you know, grad student or just a high school student? Like, what can I do to help? Mm -hmm. So I think at the organizational level, we can work it into our budgets. Right. And so we can live on less so that we'd have an opportunity to spend more. So we might work into our budgets to have a budget line for folks in our in our community of faith, like if they're in need. And that can operate both in terms of resources and in terms of, of actual just money. So we have a, a ministry we call Dirty Hands, and it's meant for folks who regularly attend Oasis. And when needs come up, we try to have either money to help or we share other sorts of resources. But then I think you could also have in your budget uh, things to help those outside your church, like in the larger community. And I think this can operate like all the way down. So um, one of my former students, he lives in San Francisco, and he, he told me maybe a year ago that now he kind of constantly carries some cash on him because he's constantly coming into, into contact with people who need. And he would, you know, he didn't use cash. He's a modern man. He used, you know, his iPhone to pay for things. Or if he didn't have, you know, that, he would use his debit card. But, you know, people in need. So... I know some people want to say, oh, you shouldn't give money to someone on the street. What if they misused it? And that's exactly what the rich ruler seems to think, right? He can obey all the laws except giving to people. And I don't think God's asking us to manage the poor. 
He's asking us to care and to give to the poor and give generously. In the same way that God gave to us generously, we should give generously. God forgave us, we forgive. God shows us mercy, we show mercy. So there's that one passage that gets used a lot in in offertories that press down, shaken together and running over, which in the context, in the context, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And I think forgiveness works exactly that way, that if you forgive, forgiveness comes back at you. It's like a smile. You smile, people smile back. But to change the variable and to move it from forgiveness to finances stretches the teaching beyond its bounds. So there are plenty of poor people, right, who have given and then died poor. Yeah. So I'm for people giving, I but I'm not for someone, particularly an old person or a child. So let's say the elderly, a widow having to choose between she has her groceries, she has some medication, and then she feels ob- an obligation to give to the church. With her, I want to say, don't feel the obligation. Let us care for you. Don't expect her to give, and so therefore she will be blessed. It's pushing a a formula, a a forensic way of the kingdom that I think actually malfunctions. Yeah, wouldn't this be, like, uh, sometimes I kind of put it this way. It's, It's somewhat of a newer prosperity gospel. Where the prosperity gospel might not say, like our, our prosperity gospel in our churches today might not say, give and you'll get seven times back or give and you'll get this thing in return, like a very tangible thing, right? Like I remember one time hearing or having the unfortunate pleasure to actually have to sit in a, an arena where I hear someone say, max out your credit card on this organization and not only will God Ouch. pay it back, right? Yeah, you're going to have all this extra. But what about, though, whenever we, we use the language of give and you'll be blessed? Give, it, give and, you, and, and you will be blessed. Now, we might leave the blessing uh, nondescript, right? We might not say exactly what that blessing is, but we kind of create this, this still this picture of in giving, you are actually going to have a return on your investment. I'm just not going to name what that return might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, I mean... There is this part of the, of the prosperity message that I don't want to throw out. That is, when God comes into people's lives, things can get better. I mean, if you have an alcoholic and they're spending a lot of money on alcohol and it's causing them to have a hard time holding down a job, then if they're delivered from that, not only do they have the money in their account that they weren't spending on alcohol, but they're able to maintain a job and maybe get a promotion. Yeah. So there is this sense in which coming into the kingdom may create a certain lift. And there's this also this general principle of kind of reaping and sowing. So, again, on the one hand, I'm very much for teaching folks in the church to give and to be generous givers. I don't want them to think that somehow that boxes God in a corner. And then mm, now God yeah. has to behave a certain way. Yeah, I want them to do it because it's how God behaves. And I think it's the best way to live. And I also want them to realize that there are people who are faithful and struggle, right? There are faithful Christians who are poor and they stay poor, right? And I think the fact that we have those folks in our greater community, whether or not we actually have them in our churches, 
we have them in our greater community and hopefully we have them in our churches too. And those are the ones we have to be sure we're caring for. So the, the most vulnerable again are the children and the widows, but then there are others too. So in Matthew 25, uh, there's this kind of eschatological discussion going on and it looks, Jesus is like, you know, I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. He's going down this list of things and they're like, oh my Jesus, when were you thirsty or when were you naked? Right. And, and then he says, when you've done it to the least of these, now we go down that list. There are six things that get named. And typically when I ask my students, they can name five of them. Almost without fail, they leave out the fourth one. So it goes like this. To the thirsty, I gave something to drink. To the hungry, I gave something to eat. To the naked, I clothed. To the stranger, I welcomed them in. That's the one that gets left out. Yeah. Then it's to the sick, we offered care. And to the prisoner, we visited. So I think the reason we're leaving out the stranger is because we leave out the stranger in the rest of our theology and practice. Like yeah. we're not good at welcoming the other and the other, the stranger or in the old Testament referred to as the alien, the one passing through is also vulnerable, which is why in Levitical law, you couldn't go over your field twice yeah. or you yeah. had to leave the corners unharvested because those people are exactly the way you were. It says when you were passing through the wilderness and so you have to have space for them. I mean, personally, when I was young, getting my education, we were on food stamps. I was, I had a federal student subsidized loan. We, we got WIC, um, which was like cheese and milk. Uh, our children were on Medicaid. We didn't have any form of health insurance. Um, there, there was, and there's some others that I'm, I'm leaving out. There, I, went, I counted them once. There were seven different government programs that Angela and I were benefiting from. That I just don't think we could have gotten to where we are now. Yeah. You know, 29 years later, with six children and a house and a job and a church. I mean, we, we're living an ideal life in so many ways. And we're doing our best to kind of pass it forward. But I don't know that we could have gotten here without those things. And I love that you put it that way earlier with kind of parsing the Greek, right? This, this economy of the house or this law of the house, what is the law of the house of God? If not those six things, yes, right? If not those six realities and in, in clothing and feeding and visiting and welcoming in the stranger and all of them, if it's not that, then what is, what is the economy of the kingdom of God? What do we do with it? Um, and I think this has always been part of the discussion on how do I manage wealth versus am I supposed to have a lot or am I not supposed to have a lot? You know, I think, and, and maybe you can help us parse through some of that because I know different time periods of Christianity where it's like, no, no, you can have a lot if you give a lot, but then you have, you know, the, uh, uh, the others who would say, no, 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 actually just get rid of all of it and then live that way. Yeah, Gustavo Gutierrez will kind of talk about that, right? Yes. The economy, he would say, liberation theology is, yes, go live amongst the poor. Like, give everything you have. Go back to Acts, you know, and just and give he did. it all. Yeah, so he's a, he's a Catholic priest, and he's made a vow of poverty, and that's a life that he's lived. And I think, you know, 
on the one hand, I'll, I'll hear sometimes, you know, conservative evangelicals and others, you know, wanting so, so badly to just follow the Bible, right? If it's, you know, the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it. But then they don't know what to do with texts like this widow who gave everything because they can't or won't, right? And so I think, well, I think they're a better reading of those texts. We've already talked about that. So I don't think you have to make a vow of poverty in order to be a Christian. I mean, I think you can have a 401k, you know, invest, invest, you That's know, good. in Thank your retirement. You. Yeah, I, yeah, I needed that, I think. Yeah. So I think it is, it is, it is personal, but it's not, it's not private. There are ways that we can collectively do it. So if, if we're following Jesus's general model of you've heard it said, but I say to you, if we're following the logic behind that, then we want to make sure we do give to our churches, but maybe give to other groups too. Give to St. Jude's, you know, give to, to, um, a local food pantry, um, volunteer your time so that, um, we will have things, phones and watches and automobiles and cars We'll go on vacations, but we'll also give kind of sacrificially. We'll make choices to lower our standard of income, to make sure we have the margin that we need, not just to take care of ourselves in times of crisis, but so that we might be able to help others in times of their crisis. So we're not maxing out, you know, the credit card. Certainly, hopefully not maxing it out in offerings to churches, but not, not maxing it out in other things either. Yeah. That there is a simple life, or at least simpler, uh, that we can embrace. And as in everything, I mean, there are these kind of gold standards that we want to reach for, you know, and, and sometimes I think we, we trip ourselves up on all that piety and we just want to be kind of faithful and kind of lean into what the spirit is leading us to do and having ears for that and spending time with people who don't have as much as we do will give us a perspective. Spending some time at a nursing home, uh, volunteering your time in the foster care system. You'll see um, me be a big brother, big sister, um, donate to, you know, Salvation Army. There's so many uh, available things that are all around us all the time. There is no shortage of, well, what should I do? No, the, the poor, we always have with it. It reminds me a little bit of, um, especially being in, an, in a college environment in which we send out a lot of students on missions trips. It, it, uh, it reminds me of that kind of paradigm where like students return from a mission trip and it's sometimes for some of them, the first time they've ever had to confront abject poverty and it flips the world upside down. Now, sometimes it flips the world upside down for a week and they go through this culture shock and they have this maybe unhealthy response of that's it. I'm going to give away everything, including all my shoes. I'm going to, you know what I mean? They kind of go to this extreme but in some sense, what I might be hearing you saying, and clarify for me if I'm if I'm getting it wrong or if there's something better here, but somewhat our intentionality of when we actually end up spending time with those who are the least of these, it changes the way in which we navigate the world. 
we want to now actually see with the eyes of Christ to go, if I'm actually with those people who, who have less than I do, then I start to actually recognize how I need to help them rather than how I spend time with maybe those who have more than me and going, here's how I want to get what they have. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing when we do comparisons, if we're doing comparisons on piety, we always compare ourselves to folks who, you know, aren't as good, right? Yeah. So at least, you know, I'm not a father like that. <laughs> at least I'm, you know, not a Christian like that. Um, like, like the Pharisee yeah. and, and the tax collector. Uh, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. But then when we think about our possessions, we don't compare ourselves to poorer people and think, whoa, look what I have. We compare ourselves to folks who have more. Ooh, that car is nicer than mine. That watch is nicer than mine. That house is nicer than mine. That vacation is nicer than mine. So we always compare ourselves up, yeah, right, when we think about possessions, and we compare ourselves down when we think about kind of ethical behaviors. And, and that's problematic. I mean, the whole co- we're always going to lose comparison games. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, for me, I think just that reality of spending time with those who are the least of these are, is constantly forcing us to actually have that mindset to go, how is it that if I spend this money, am I being a good steward of that money in light of those who may not? Yes. I mean, with coming back to, to the kids, When Carly came to us, she obviously had experienced a fair amount of food insecurity. She constantly said, I was hungry. Like that was her just go-to word. And so anytime you put food in front of her, she would eat it. And so, and then she'd try and save it, store it up. And then, you know, she said to her counselor, even not that long ago, uh, the other day I hadn't had breakfast and the food was too high and I couldn't get to it. And he's like, when did that happen? And she said, that was a couple weeks ago which that couldn't have happened a couple of weeks ago because that's not the life she currently lives. But yeah. time kind of folds together, right? And it's hard, it's hard to remember. So initially we had to leave food around, like accessible to her. Yeah. And, and then when meals were regular and snacks were regular, she got to the point that she stopped saying, I'm hungry. Like, I remember the first time she said, I'm hungry. And then she said, oh, wait, no, I'm not. Huh. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with practice. Yeah. I mean, habits. We, we don't have to kind of go from zero to 60 overnight. Just, you know, carry some extra dollars with you and start to share. Um, next time you plan a major expenditure, what if you cut it back a bit in order to store some up for the rainy day uh, or for somebody else's rainy day? Um, you know, vol- volunteer um, with, with the, the, the foster care system. Become a guardian ad litem. Or, I mean, I don't think everyone has to do everything. I mean, they can't. Ben was talking about this earlier. And so maybe... Being a foster parent is beyond the scope of what you can do. Maybe you're not in a position to bring additional kids into your home or you haven't had kids yourself and you're not quite ready for that. Yeah. But then you could befriend a family in your church that has it. Like if, if your friends are the foster mom and dad, you all could become like the foster uncles. Yeah. Right. And then your parents could be like the foster grandparents 
Um, so like uh, my parents are both deceased and so are Angela's. So there's, there's no one in our biological family to play the role of grandparent to our kids, any of our kids. Yeah. But there are people in our church who kind of play that role. Hmm. They play that role, not only for Cecily and Carly, but also for, you know, Katie and Hannah and Rebecca and Madeline. And that, that sense of family, I think can, can broaden and, you know, we're, we're, again, we're not the savior of the world. We serve the savior of the world. Yeah. 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 That, you know, I, I, I just appreciate, um, what you've been sharing from the standpoint, because it's not, um, it's not from a place of unfamiliarity, right? It, it's something that you embody that I've watched you for the last close to four years embody and live out. And so for our listeners out there, I just, I just want you to know that this, you know, this is a, a man that lives what he preaches. Um, and I know that sometimes it's hard for us to imagine, like, it's too good to be true. Um, but um, it is true in this case. And so um, thank you for that. Yeah, um, thanks. I know our, some of our listeners. Uh, I love you guys. To, um, but I, I like what you said to, to kind of close the circle. It's, it's the economy of the kingdom and it's not the structure of the kingdom, right? Cause I think you kind of said it, like we try to structure things. We try to, even with the whole prosperity gospel, Aaron, that you were sharing before, it's like, we try to find the, the formula to, for it to work hundred percent of the time. If you have the formula, just plug it in and it will produce this result. And it's not right. It's not with the kingdom. It's, it's, it's the embodiment of what we have to do for others, right? It's living it out daily. And sometimes the blessing is you seeing a smile on two beautiful young girls' lives of saying my forever family, that no amount of money can ever bring that smile, but only the love of Jesus. Yeah, we thank you so much for being with us. And I agree with all of Ben's sentiments there. It's one of the reasons why I would I would say again, uh, you're a very seminal person in my life and, and my education. So we, we loved having you on and, um, let our listeners know if there's any way that they can connect with you, if they want to kind of further have a discussion with you, like how, how can someone connect with you and maybe even get to see you more? Yes. The Twitter, his Twitter game is on point. Just want to say that. <laughs> mm, thanks, Ben. So, I mean, there are the social media outlets that we now minister through, um, you know, 25 years ago, I had some ministry positions that didn't involve a mobile phone. And now I do a lot of pastoral care through text messages. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I guess that's the way, I mean, they could always come and enroll in one of our programs here at the School of Divinity. Oh, yeah, no, a yeah. good, good shameless plug for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's our primary ministry, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a faculty member and uh, we have grad programs and we have undergrad programs. I do, you know, pastor a local church, so there is the podcast of the church that um, we post our sermons. So if you're not local, that that would be access in that way. Uh, if, if someone did want to reach out to me, um, if you surfed your way to Southeastern University's website, you'd be able to find me in my email. What's uh, what's your Twitter handle for people? Uh, Robbie Waddell, R-O-B-B-Y. Uh, W-A-D-D-E-L-L. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again for being with us, and uh, we'll, we'll be with you guys soon again. Yeah.